0: Welcome to Journeys in Podcasting. My name is Chris Davis. In this session, Frank Baker, author, photographer, television news anchor, and media literacy advocate and teacher trainer discusses the ever-increasing importance of media literacy in school curriculum. This audio recording was recently salvaged after my computer crashed just after recording it in December of 2019. I found a copy of it this week as I was cleaning out backup files on my phone. When it was recorded, the world was not yet in full pandemic. In fact, we had just heard of something happening in Wuhan. Media moves fast and students in schools are in a very different place. However, Frank's ideas are even more relevant after quarantines and online learning. Teachers and students have never been more capable in producing digital content and more in need of skills to decode a digital media world that has become even more pervasive in our lives. So here it is, the Lost Podcast episode of Frank Baker.
1: First of all, Chris, thank you for having me. The short story is I grew up in in South Carolina. Um, I went away to college at the University of Georgia, came back and worked in television news. And I was a news producer for nine years at five TV stations. The last stop was Orlando, Florida, where I left television news and joined the public school system. And I was an administrator in charge of instructional television, among other things. And one of my duties at that time in Orlando, at the time the 16th largest school system in the country, was to purchase the films and videos that teachers would use in the classroom. And, um, you know, about a year into this job, I went to the superintendent and I said, do you mind if I go uh, and do a little field trip? I want to sit in some classrooms and watch and observe and witness as teachers use these materials. He said, you know, go right ahead. You know, just at the end of the week, uh, give me a report. So at the end of the week, I wrote a report and I'm gonna paraphrase here how frustrated I was that I didn't see any teacher engage students in any, what, what we called at the time critical viewing skills. I didn't see one teacher engage students in any previewing questions. I didn't see any teacher introduce any vocabulary that students might hear in the film or video. I didn't see one teacher Use any uh, post viewing questions, asking for understanding. So I began investigating critical viewing skills as a small part of something larger called media literacy. And I, I, uh, at the time, a lot of my constituency was school library media specialists. I would do workshops in their libraries. I would scan their bookshelf looking for books about media. I knew the librarian was basically in charge of books, but they also had this shelf of videotapes. And, you know, my goal was to raise their awareness of how important critical thinking about media is. And this was the days right before the internet and computers entered the classroom. And of course, when that happened, um, the explosion of information literacy uh, came to the forefront and the school library media specialists found themselves at the forefront of teaching students how to be better critical thinkers about what they're doing online. You know, one of the stories that I I like to tell is that uh, 21 years ago, Alan November Wrote a, a very impressive article called Teaching Zach, I think it was Teaching Zach to Read, it might be Teaching Zach to Think. But in the story, November tells the story of Zach, a student who had submitted a paper, and his paper um, concluded that the Holocaust never happened. And the teacher said, Zach, you know, where did you get your information? And Zach said, I got it from this professor's website. And he cites the professor and the URL for this Northwestern professor. And uh, among other things, Alan November says, take a look at the URL of the paper that this professor wrote alleging that the Holocaust never happened. And in that URL is the tilde symbol. And the tilde symbol in a URL indicates a personal website. Uh-huh. And here it is, 21 years later, and where most young people get their information online, how many of them ever start by looking at the URL? And I'm finding that this, this is the case. We, we aren't teaching students how to properly uh, read a website. So I'm fascinated by some new research out of Stanford. Uh, the Stanford History Education Group, which revealed a lot of weaknesses in what today's young people are getting from social media and YouTube and other sources. And one of their recommendations is called lateral reading. And uh, so I'm talking to school librarians today and asking them how many of you all have heard of lateral reading, and no hands come up. They aren't aware of this strategy, which basically recommends that all of us, not just students, all of us, when we get to a website, yeah, we go to the URL at the top, but open a second tab. And in that second tab, the goal is to research the source of the first tab. So too many of us start at the top of a website and we read horizontally down the page. And so we've got to rethink the way we are teaching uh, the Internet. Uh, But, of course, uh, my journey didn't start with with the Internet. Um, I I worked in television news, so I was really fascinated by how we tell stories. How do we package a story in in 90 seconds or less for for television news? I was a news producer. So, uh, among other things, I was in charge of orchestrating, if you will, um, that 30-minute newscast. You know, what's going to go into it, what's not going to go into it? Uh, What sound bites am I going to edit from a presidential news conference? What is it that I want my audience to know and be uh, comfortable with? And so I have followed journalism uh, for years. Uh, I have followed the news for years. So I I, I worked in in television news. I worked at the public education system. Uh, I left Orlando, Florida after 11 years, Uh, returned to South Carolina where I worked for a short stint at public television And when they laid me off, I decided to become an education consultant. While at public television, I went to my bosses and I said, what are the curriculum conferences that um, South Carolina public television attends? He said, well, we don't really go to any education conferences. And I said, if you'd allow me uh, some money in the budget, I'd like to go and present not only – the math programs that public television offers, but I'd also like to do some media literacy for those math educators, and they said yes. And so I started uh, 20 years ago going to education conferences, the English, the math, the social studies, the science, the arts conference, any place I could go, I wanted to make that media literacy connection. I mentioned the math conference, and and I did a session where I was really pleased that so many math educators came and sat in this session. The session was called Math and the Media. And I said, you know, in your textbook you probably, you might study sports statistics or something like that. I said, what about the, the television ratings? Every one of your students watches television. And I said to these math teachers, do you know what a TV rating is? Nobody raised their hands. They had not been made aware that television ratings and shares are percentages. They didn't know how the numbers were generated. They didn't know how the numbers were used. Um, And that was my goal in that session was to provide them not only with the background, but how to incorporate ratings and shares uh, into a math classroom, which I think makes learning math uh, a little bit more interesting. I mean, I'm remembering my own Uh, education and, you know, math in many ways is so distant to students because it it never makes a connection to their own lives. And so as a media educator, I've come to that point where I look at the news, the current events and popular culture, and I try to make the connection to media uh, literacy. You know, we're recording this call the day after the impeachment of Donald Trump. And if any teacher wanted to study uh, persuasive persuasion and bias all they had to do was to look at the arguments used by both sides there and here this morning I'm looking at the front pages of the major American newspapers suggesting again that teachers who can find the front page images and words online easily could do have students do a compare and contrast And so, as you see, a fan of everything that's going on in the world around us, and it seems to me that every day that I wake up, there is something new that Frank Baker can use (laughs) <laughs> to engage teachers and most of my audience in my professional development is educators. I, I do go around the country doing uh, continue to do professional development at conferences, at schools and at school districts. And my goal is to help that educator feel more comfortable pulling that commercial into the classroom, that movie clip, that 90 minute segment from the news, that magazine cover that photograph, how do we bring uh, the media in and, and help students understand, how to read the media. That's when, been one of my goals, is how do we convince teachers that media are also texts, mm-hmm. yet I mm-hmm. don't find media as text acknowledged in today's textbooks. And that, that bothers me. Now, I, I realize that we are in a, a, a world where a lot of young people don't read. Well, to me, all media involve writing. Again, I don't see that acknowledged in our textbooks. I don't see that acknowledged in our colleges of education. Several years ago, I was invited to uh, keynote the Michigan Council of Teachers of English. I had this prepared speech in front of me, and at the last moment, I decided to to ad-lib a question. I said to the 300 or so teachers in this ballroom, how many of you all got any media literacy instruction in your college of education? I looked to my left, I looked to my right, not a one hand. Hmm. I said, since you've been in the classroom, how much media literacy professional development have you had? Maybe one or two hands went up. And I said, ladies and gentlemen, you can't teach what you don't know, what you have not been taught. And so in 1999, I came back from my National Media Literacy Conference, all excited because I was gonna go online and Search for media literacy in all 50 states' teaching standards, and I partnered with the late Bob Cuby from Rutgers, and we wrote a uh, editorial commentary for Education Week in which we gave the results of the study, of, of which we found elements of media literacy in almost every state's teaching standards, predominantly in the English language arts, but also in social studies. And it helped. And now, in 2019, I look at the teaching standards. We have 42 or 43 states that have adopted Common Core. And Common Core has basically wiped out all of the advances that states had made in media literacy. Common Core ignores media literacy. Mm -hmm. It's basically Mm -hmm. a print uh, document. And, And when I when the Common Core English Language Arts Standards were rolled out for review, my my colleague and I looked at that document and what did we find? No media literacy Mm -hmm. at all. Uh, And and so we tried to call attention to what's left. And the the best media literacy question everybody can ask is what am I not told? What is left out and why? Which is, is critical. Here in South Carolina where I reside, about two years ago, the state's social studies teaching standards were published for review. And the day they were published, I was online with another colleague, and we did a keyword search for the word Holocaust. It was nowhere in a 500-page document. And we said, okay, so we'll look for the word genocide. Nowhere in the 500-page document. We were appalled. I hung up the phone. I picked up my phone. And I called a journalist that I know at my local newspaper and told him. And the next week, the front page story was the superintendent of education confirms the Holocaust will be reinstated in the document. But I'm often asked, you know, why? Why would the Holocaust be left out? Hmm. And I don't know the answer, but I can suspect that perhaps the folks who represent Holocaust education in my own state were not seated at the table. Maybe the same thing with Common Core. The people who represent media literacy and understand its importance in a 21st century world were not seated at the table. And if you're not at the table, then your views are not going to be heard and considered. So here in South Carolina, I've been successful in getting my local state lawmaker to introduce a what I call a model media literacy bill which would require the State Department of Education to ensure that all students in every discipline get some media literacy instruction. Mm -hmm. Now that's a huge ask, a huge task. Uh, I don't know how far it's gonna go this year, uh, but I'm not the first. There is a nationwide movement uh, started by a group called Media Literacy Now uh, Mm -hmm. that's been working with uh, like-minded people in states and in fact, the state of Washington was the first to have passed media literacy legislation and other states have done the same thing. Some of this legislation does not really have the kind of muscle that I would like to see happen. You know, My experience is something happens that we call attention to, bullying or plagiarism or, uh, or uh, uh, alg- algorithmic literacy that we think students need to know today well, by the time that gets to the education community and maybe they write a teaching standard to address it, it'll be two years down the road and you and I'll be talking about something else. And that's really unfortunate. Is the system broken? God, yes, absolutely. <laughs> so that's my take.
2: This is excellent because you just kind of bracketed a lot of terms I'd like to go into in a little bit more detail. I love your experience with ethnography. Like, if you want to work with schools, teaching and learning is a social cultural phenomenon. You have to go in and actually see what's happening and spend time in those spaces. And I don't think there's another way to go about that.
1: Oh, you know, and I think in a lot of cases, uh, Chris, the, the folks in the tall tower, <laughs> State Department of Education folks, they're so removed from what happens in the classroom, you know, they're, 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 they're making decisions not based on uh, experience. You know, one of my examples is we're banning cell phones in schools. Mm-hmm. I, I go, why? You know, I understand why these are people afraid of what young people are going to do. You know what my answer is? Why don't we invite those same young people to sit down at the table and help write the policy? Mm. Let's engage them. You know, we don't do that. We're going to, the adults are going to make the rules and we're going to impose them on the young people. And in, in a lot of ways in 2019, Education has no connection to young people's lives, young people's culture, and young people's experiences.
2: So you also mentioned basically what Sasha cohen Baron was talking about in his recent talk where he's uh, speaking against Zuckerberg's speech, where he talks about Facebook's almost conspiratorial tone about political advertisement, and how uh, things like the Holocaust, if you Google it, you get some crazy denial stuff in there as well. And, you know, he's questioning Google, like, why is that happening? This is social fact that these things happened. And yet, you're allowing people to publish and disseminate information that that goes against that. Let's start with a question that I was kind of dying to ask you. And that was, in your book, Media Literacy, Media Literacy for the K-12 Classroom, and I believe you just come up with a, a second edition recently, you begin talking about photography before other forms of media. Two images you start with, Migrant Mother from Dorothy Lange and an Ansel Adams photograph taken from Manzanar. I know a bit about history photography and before Lang, I know that uh, Lewis Hine had pioneered photography as an educational medium with his students and proved that photographs could be catalysts for social change by documenting child labor. Adams photograph from Manzanar on the the other hand is more elusive. I personally never knew that before reading your book that the true context of this photograph I merely appreciate it as an artful example of repetition and diminutizing form to create a depth of field. The dramatic light play and the classic thirds arrangement. It's a perfect photograph. But then it hit me that Roland Barthes writes about something called punctum and studium. And punctum is the emotional impact that a photo has. While I I was hit by the punctum, I definitely lacked the studium, which is the socio-cultural context. My question to you is why start with photography? And maybe I can load this question a little bit more is, why is photography so powerful and relevant after 195 years?
1: Our students today live in a a visual world. Uh, Most of them already carry with them a device, a mobile phone in which they take pictures, shoot video, upload, to uh, any number of social media websites. So they are proficient in the uh, the taking of pictures. They're not necessarily proficient at reading those pictures. Mm. And that's where I think um, a lot of education falls to the wayside. Uh, so by including the migrant mother photo in my book and uh, the Ansel Adams photo in my book, I'm really saying a photo is more than what you see. And it's, I think, incumbent upon teachers who use uh, images in the classroom, whether they're in a textbook or in some other medium, to explore the story behind the picture. I show the migrant mother photograph and ask how many in my audience know the name of the photographer, how many of them know that Dorothea Lange was part of a group of other photographers hired during the Roosevelt administration. Here FDR was trying to get the New Deal passed. And these images uh, were used as propaganda to get people to support the New Deal. In fact, when people read the story of Frances Thompson, the woman portrayed in Migrant Mother, when they read about the starving children, when people read that in the newspaper, they petitioned the federal government, at which sent uh, you know, thousands of pounds of food to the migrant um, workers. You know, so we talk about a photograph causing people to take action. The, the Ansel Adams image um, is powerful in, in many ways. His photographs, uh, his landscape work is, is remarkable. If you don't understand why was the photographer at that location. What brought him or her there? And Dorothea Lange wrote about that day in which she turned her car around and pulled into the pea picker's camp. How she came to take this woman's picture how that migrant mother photo has become iconic and is even used today in the news uh, when we talk about recession or depression. Mm -hmm. Um, We see these images repeated over and over again, but how often do we take the time to explore the the stories behind them? And there's a a new series of books that if you don't mind, I'd like to mention here. Mm -hmm. And it's, um, uh, it's called Captured History and they are published by Capstone Press. I have to tell you one of my first book was published by Capstone Press, so I was extremely impressed to see a series of books each dedicated to an iconic image in history. And these books appropriate for upper elementary, middle school or even high school help the reader understand how did the image come to be? and and I really am a big fan of these kinds of books. So in my own work, I am bringing historic images and contemporary images, um, most from the news, into my work with teachers, um, photographs with no captions, and asking them to do a close read. And most of these teachers have never had this opportunity, so it's all new to them. And so I've I've given them some guidance by using a a video and a worksheet from a Canadian group called the, I think it's Critical Thinking Consortium. And in their video, they use a worksheet called Explain the Image. So it has guiding questions. You know, uh, what can you infer from what you see? And I I think, you know, having teachers become comfortable taking an image from the news and using it with students is extremely important because it's just vital. I'm a relatively new photographer, about five or six years. Before I was into photography, I could not tell you what rule of thirds means. But today I do include rule of thirds in my own work. And for those who don't know the rule of thirds, I'll just give you an example. I would go to the beach and get up and shoot the sunrise coming up over the ocean, and I would put the sun in the middle of my viewfinder. I thought, it looks beautiful. Well, the rule of thirds, imagine a tic-tac-toe board uh, superimposed over your image. Uh, The rule of thirds says a more aesthetically pleasing image moves the the subject, the primary subject, to one of the crosshairs in that tic-tac-toe board. So if I move the sun now to the upper left-hand corner, the upper right-hand, lower left, lower right, it becomes more aesthetically pleasing. So how can I teach this? Well, every magazine publisher uses the rule of thirds. Every album cover uses the rule of thirds. A magazine advertisements use the rule of thirds. Most photographers and cinematographers know the rule of thirds. And so even my Canon camera, uh, Has a rule of thirds grid that I can put into my viewfinder. These are the things that we could be teaching students about, you know, uh, how to read a photograph, and that that becomes part of a larger topic called visual literacy. So you ask, you know, why would I start with a photograph? It's the same reason that if a teacher invites me into a classroom to teach students about film, I'm not going to bring the film in on day one. I'm going to bring in a film still and say let's take a look at what's in this picture we can look at the costumes we can look at the expressions we can look at the lighting we can look at the set design we can look at all of those things and so i'm trying to teach young people how to look deeper into media than they probably ever did you know when they go to a movie they sit in this theater or they watch it on their tablets the thinking part of their brains are turned off. Yet when a teacher uses a film, a movie in the classroom, passive viewing is not the goal, active viewing. And so the teacher must do more to prepare that students for whatever he or she puts on the screen. I think many of us in education assume we put it on the screen, oh, they got it. No, they don't got it. Uh, I'm preparing to do a, a whole day on documentaries. You know, we sit and watch a documentary, Boy, we feel good because we've been educated. We know everything about this particular person or topic. Well, documentaries have points of view. They leave things out. I've just seen the movie Richard Jewell, and for the audience that hasn't seen it, there's an ongoing controversy about a journalist portrayed in the film who's no longer living, and the newspaper that she's worked for, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is actually suing the movie maker for the wrongful portrayal of their reporter in this film. Well, most people going to see a docudrama do not know what artistic license is. In fact, I'm on a crusade here. Most movies in big, bold letters based on a true story, right? And at the very end of the credits, in the smallest possible font, is the disclaimer, which no one reads. Why is it the disclaimer at the beginning of the movie, not at the end of the movie? Hmm. And so I want teachers and students and everybody to think more deeply. I'm going to see a, a movie based on a true story. Well, how do I know what is factual? How do I know what is not? Hmm. And the, this is a worthy activity, um, not
2: especially for students today. So a couple of questions on top of what you just talked about. And one is uh, I did notice – by reading through media literacy uh, in the K-12 classroom that you give a lot of scaffolded questions of entry points of how a schemata for approaching photographs. I've been in this uh, space kind of for a while now about schemata theory of how we're often doing a lot of the thinking for the kids and I I realize that what you're trying to get them to do is, is unlock the secrets of this photograph and I guess my question is why not use something like Project Zero Thinking Move, a See Think Wonder where you allow the kids to observe closely and construct their, their own schemata. In your experiences, what do you see there An advantage of letting kids explore, create their own understanding of a photograph versus getting th- jump-starting things with some prompting questions?
1: I, I think what you've asked is very, very important. Mm-hmm. We can certainly start by asking students, what do you see? Mm-hmm. What is your experience? Unfortunately, a lot of students don't know how to observe. If they take a field trip to an art museum, unless they've been properly prepared, how do they begin to appreciate what they see? Hmm. And even though I'm, I'm not a fan of, of worksheets, I think the, the worksheet could be a you know the jumping off point for all of them. And I think that's really, really important. And I'll use myself as an example. I remember taking a field trip to an art museum when I was in maybe middle school. I didn't have a clue why I should stop and spend some time looking at this painting, understanding who the painter was, what were their experiences, what were they trying to communicate through this image. And so I've begun to appreciate visual literacy more and more today, especially in, in a world where a lot of young people's visual images have been manipulated you know we are in a world right now where the researchers and the scientists are raising the red flag about deep fakes videos that can be altered to make anybody say anything and they appear to be seamless and so the researchers are trying to find the antidote how do we help tell when a video has been doctored. You know, there's been a lot of research about the manipulation of images since the inception of still photography. And then of course we have Photoshop, right? And and endlessly young people have access in certain schools to digital manipulation tools. That's good, Uh, but that can also be bad. And we've seen bad examples of Photoshop you know my experience is visual literacy is very strong k to five or k to six but beyond sixth grade you get to middle school and high school and i think visual literacy in many ways uh, drops off of their radar screen now it might be in a textbook but i'm advocating for the visual literacy in your everyday world that magazine cover i recently i was with school librarians and i brought magazines that my dentist saves me from visit to visit and and I actually did a workshop with young people. I was at this middle school, uh, the art instructor said I want to do something with media and technology, so I brought a bunch of these magazines that would be outside the reading purview of these students. So I have Time Magazine, most influential people projected on the screen, and there's Jay-Z on the cover. These middle school students are not reading Time Magazine, but that's not the issue, the issue was In what ways is this cover appealing, attractive? So we dive into even more visually into graphic design. So I gave students these magazines, and we did a superficial read of the cover. And then I asked some media literacy kinds of questions. Who creates Time Magazine? Who is the audience for Time Magazine? And then on the, the second day, they came back each student was assigned a different magazine. They went to the computers, and on the computers we had preloaded magazine cover template software, and they were assigned to recreate the cover that they were assigned. Well, I want to tell you, you want to talk about engagement? Mm -hmm. Wow, engaged. And I have a photo of a young student. She had been given um, a magazine called Orchid Magazine, and you can imagine there was a beautiful Orchid on the cover. Well, what did she do? She went online. She found an orchid. She pasted it into the software. She put a title at the top. She put some captions uh, underneath it. And at the end of the, the, the session, she was so proud of her cover. And I can tell you, her cover rivaled the original. And about a year later, I was doing another workshop, and there, her teacher came up to me and said. I- my students are still talking about that activity that you did with them. She said, I never would have thought of doing what you did, but it was engaging, it was meaningful. And and that's what I'm, I'm trying to do. I'm trying to help young people see in ways they don't know they need to be seeing. What do I want them to, to notice, uh, to pay attention to? Why might this be important? Why?" Did a photographer bother to take this picture, to publish it? Because, you know, photographers want to to be to be seen. I take so many pictures as a nature photographer, and I'm, I'm a, a big-time sharer. I, I think the epitaph on my tombstone is probably going to say he shared, uh, because I mm-hmm. like to share. Uh, when I work for the school system, if I found a, a resource... I was sending emails out, then I published a newsletter, then I got a media literacy website, and now I'm on Twitter and social. So Frank Baker is still sharing what he knows and what he wants educators to know all over the place.
2: Well, I can attest to that because I've been following your Twitter feed over the last couple of weeks. Even in the last 24 hours, three very relevant pieces. One, the New York Times article that came out about how to teach impeachment which is a great media literacy piece with tons of resources in there as well. It, let me jump to something else because uh, I, I, we may get a little circular here in a minute because you're covering a lot of themes. However, I want to go back to this idea of painting versus photographs. I know you talk about the idea of interdisciplinary studies helping media literacy a lot. I've heard painters, painters I usually think about as adding to a rectangle. They add elements as they go, whereas photographers take out by their manipulation of framing and, and angle. Now that you've been teaching how photographs communicate and manipulate for years, uh, you know, even pre-digital age, how have you seen media literacy of students, teachers change in the digital age? And maybe I'll just mention that my experience, even within a three-year period from when iPhones and iPads were starting to come into play and we had iPads in the classroom, I went from having to teach things like thirds, depth of field, repetition of form, and Kids were, at third grade, just doing these things naturally. They knew what a good photograph looked and felt like. They played with perspective. They got up close. Uh, Their framing got a lot better. I know it's important to teach photography as a medium of communication. I'm wondering what you've seen as far as the spectrum of change
1: i'm not sure how to answer that because i'm not in the classroom and i don't observe change i was going to tell you this real quick story uh, when my oldest son was uh, small i made him sit down and watch this public television series which featured david hockney and hockney was explaining the horizon line and so my son uh, watched hockney was showing the horizon line and how to Position uh, trees in different places. So the, the public television show ended, and, and what it, my son, not prompted, he went and picked up a big art pad and he began to draw. Here I am working in instructional television, wanting to expose my son to educational material as as opposed to watching you know wrestling on Saturday afternoon, and he picked up what he gleaned from David Hockney about the horizon line and began to draw his own picture showing that he understood horizon line and how to position those trees, you know, on the horizon line, beyond it, in front of it. And I thought, this is great. This is absolutely great. Now I, I'm, I'm seeing in my own home the power of television uh, to educate. So when I think about your your, your question, I, um, I can only think that our students have more access to video and visuals than ever before. Um, I think the research is clear. Uh, YouTube has their attention, which is, which is, you know, which is fine. Um, uh, whatever they're doing on YouTube, but are they thinking critically about what they are viewing? Yeah. Um, so here in 2019, uh, maybe the word of, of the year is influencer. And would students even be able to recognize when they are being secretly influenced by someone they might follow online? Um, I think there was a recent story uh, about a young man who promotes and advocates for toys and i think uh, the federal trade commission or somebody slapped him because he didn't reveal that he's been hired by these toy companies to do what he he does I, I, so i, I as, as much exposure as young people have and access to new media and technology i don't think they are asking the critical thinking questions and in my work with librarians lately uh, they are aware of what I call the the fake news infographic, that infographic that says, you know, check the source. And, it, you know, all these, and I say to the librarians, why don't you print out that infographic and put it next to every computer in the school so that when students go to that computer to do what they do, they see these questions because they're not thinking about the things that they are exposed to, whether it be online, whether it be on the internet, uh, whatever whatever it happens to be. And I think um, on television, uh, we're recording this around the holiday time of year. I'm always writing about TV toy commercials and how they influence kids. And I think uh, today the toy manufacturers, and many of them have moved away from broadcasting on Saturday morning to putting their toy ads in popular videos for young people. So before you, you can see your video, you've got to surf or, or be
2: served uh, some ad by some company. You don't have your guard up as you normally would yeah. as you approach a normal advertisement. I, I think I was very lucky in, like, when I was in third grade, we had a media literacy workshop. It was maybe half a day thing and specialists came in they showed a video and they t- they had made a mock commercial for a toy car and it had all this music and excitement and emotion to it and then they took each part of the media using you know what we would call screenshots of uh, the music and they they isolated each element so that by the time you like saw the the toy car just rolling down the street kind of sadly with no music and kids screaming you were really able to realize how much manipulation was going on and how nothing is to be trusted in the advertising world. (laughs) They're they're always trying to get in your head in a certain form. You're using
1: a really good example, uh, Chris, because in my own work, I'm using a similar commercial from a 1990s HBO special called Buy Me That.
0: Hmm.
1: Buy Me That was a collaboration of HBO and Consumer Reports for Kids. And in the very first episode, uh, the host says, can you really believe those toys? Can you really trust them? And he introduces a toy called Typhoon 2. And we watch Typhoon 2 as it hits land and it, and it comes off this cliff and it hits the water and then we cut to a shot of Typhoon 2 from underwater. And the producer of, of, of By Me That said, well, we gave the toy, Typhoon 2, to some kids to take outside and test it. Well, the kid's tested, and the toy fails miserably. And one of the young people interviewed says, well, the commercial makes it look so good, but it's just not. And I've been using that since the 90s with teachers and with students to say most products produced today and advertised today are designed to look better than they really are. Mm -hmm. And I wrote a lesson plan for that toy commercial. That, that segment from Buy Me That. I uploaded the segment to YouTube. I, and I encourage teachers to use it. And basically it's you know, how do we deconstruct a commercial? They go by so quickly in 30 seconds. What do we want students to know? I start sometimes with the script, even before I show the commercial. Mm-hmm. Let's take a look at the words and the images on a two-column script. And here's my way of of advocating and and, and talking about all media involved writing. No commercial gets made before it's written. No movie gets made before it's written, right? That photograph of Dorothea Lange, she, uh, that, uh, Dorothea Lange to, she had to write a caption before she sent it back to her offices in Washington, D.C. And later in life, she actually wrote about the experience. And so we can't depend on just the visual image. It's incumbent upon us to go deeper, And ask questions. Why did you take this picture? Mm. Why is this commercial on this television show? Who are they trying to reach? What techniques are they using? This is my favorite question. What techniques are they using to make something believable? And here we are in 2019, on my television set, I'm being bombarded by commercials for aspiring presidential candidates. And I'm saying to teachers, you see them, uh, you can grab them off of YouTube. These are wonderful media text to use with your with your students but only if you know how to use it mm-hmm. And that's where I come into play to hold teachers' hands to you know show them a commercial, give them some guidance, uh, maybe even give them a worksheet which talks about symbolism mm-hmm. and music and color, expressions things that they may not know they need to pay attention to that their students need to pay attention to. Because the people creating the political campaign commercial are probably the same people creating the Tide commercial or the Honda commercial, right? <laughs> These are advertising executives. Uh, in my book on media and politics, I wrote about uh, the White House having an office of communications, right? Uh, they orchestrate everything
2: for the camera. Are you uh, able to hear me okay? Uh oh. Hmm.
1: thomas jefferson said the health of a democracy depends on an informed electorate and i'm sitting here uh fearful that a lot of people are misinformed ill-informed you know are watching paying attention to listening to sources that are not credible Uh, Believing those and then passing on Misinformation I heard somebody
2: say that the problem is is not fake news It's the repetition of the fake news. No, I just having that same conversation yesterday Talking about algorithms and how algorithms are basically operating on principles of our cognitive biases that have been there for a long time the more you repeat something the more likely we are to find some kind of affinity with that thing, no matter how negative yeah. it is. So President... Uh, and who knew
1: that but Adolf Hitler and <laughs> Joseph Goebbels, Goebbels,
2: right? So I, I also think and that Donald Trump. you're in this space, I believe, the right moment. You know, just in the last weeks, we've seen the National Assessment of Education Progress uh, and the PISA, the Program for Student International Assessment, have both published reports indicating that U.S. students are not improving or behind or, or you know getting worse in their reading and writing literacy compared to similar countries. This to me is the product of No Child Left Behind and Race to the Top. These are yeah. strategies that disembodied reading and writing uh, for much of the natural language construction that surrounds multimodal communication, compound all of this with two of our ten high school students, 2 out of 10 high school students unable to distinguish fact from opinion, plus Russian election interference, plus Facebook refusing to censor political ads, plus Twitter and Chief spending $1 trillion a week on Facebook ads, plus over 50% of adults who get their news from Facebook. I'm not sure if there's ever been a stronger moment for media literacy in schools. This week you've tweeted the report as we mentioned about the media literacy curriculum laws in South Carolina on the move. What is going on here? I think this is a wake up call,
1: Chris. State teaching standards have virtually ignored media literacy. Yet, a number of national groups have recognized media literacy and recommended them. Among them, the Partnership for 21st Century Skills, the National Board of Professional Teaching Standards, the National Council of Social Studies, uh, the National Council uh, of Teachers of English, Um, the Horizon K-12 report, Future Work Skills 2020. What bothers me is I think many in the education community are not paying attention. Uh, We took techniques of persuasion out of standards in favor of argument. I'm not opposed to students learning how to decipher and recognize argument, but propaganda techniques are increasingly important you know propaganda is primarily mentioned in in social studies in world war one and world war two and then we don't touch propaganda for the rest of the school year yeah you and i can both look around and see propaganda techniques used every day my colleague renee hobbs has created, and I'll just tell you her story. She went to the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. She walked through their propaganda exhibit. She said, wow, this is really great, except you didn't address any contemporary propaganda. And so she created a crowd-sharing website called Mind Over Media, analyzing contemporary propaganda, in which she invites contributions. And I have to admit, I have contributed one or more. I'll give you an example. We all know about the Gulf oil spill and the disaster that happened in the Gulf oil, right? Mm. A month or two later, BP comes out with a commercial of one of their executives standing on the beach and everything is great here on the Gulf. Y'all come on down and we (laughs) show egrets flying over the marsh and people eating seafood. You know, everything's fine. Everything's not fine. That's propaganda and uh, the vice president of communications for bp writes an opinion piece uh, on slate or salon i can't remember which mm-hmm. and saying everything is great at the gulf no everything's not great on the gulf go down there and talk to shrimpers go down there and talk to fishermen go down to talk to people who make their livelihood there it's not great and so you've got to have that Healthy skepticism. You know, sometimes in, in my audiences, I call my classes my bullshit classes, right? Uh, a dentist says, four out of five dentists recommend blank toothpaste. Uh, bullshit. Come on now, people. Think about it. You know, a study comes out. Is it a reliable study? Do you know how to read the study to see? if the information is accurate. You know, just because it says a study doesn't mean it's um, it's reliable, right? And so, speaking to librarians recently, I said in 2018, dictionary.com came out with their word of the year, uh, disinformation, right? Well, in 2019, Frank Baker, who doesn't have the reach of dictionary.com, Frank Baker said the word of the year is verification. How many people are verifying what they read and they consume. They just take it with a grain of salt and they run with it. And that's dangerous. You know, it's kind of like running that red light. Well, maybe nobody will hit me and maybe the police won't see me, right? I'm gonna run that red light and I'm gonna take a risk. Well, too many people are taking risks today and they are not verifying the information that they consume, including our students. And that's my red flag. If we don't wake up and strengthen teaching standards, if we don't provide teachers with quality, relevant professional development, if we don't have excellent library media specialists, qualified, if we don't have texts for students to read that address media and media issues and media creation, Mm. very important that students not only analyze media, but have opportunities to make media as well. And
2: this is a concern. That's a theme that I'm, I'm kind of hearing cycling through and I, I know you're a constructivist but for example you mentioned the Holocaust and you know the purposes of decoding the Holocaust is not to fetishize the artifact and just to understand the art that it happened is to think about where is that present in today's world and how do we prevent those kind of things from happening. It's about that constructive action that we'll, we'll take from there. You know, Neil Postman, I'm sure you're familiar with, he asked the question, what do you plan to do about, you know, this crisis happening in Syria, or this crisis happening in another potentially catastrophic part of the world? And he said, let me answer that for you. Absolutely nothing. Because the news and the media is coming at you so quickly, you may be decoding it, but you're not decoding it in any kind of constructivist way. You know, this is the stuff of of John Dewey, that knowledge is action upon the environment. We're not just sure. filling our head with this information, but it's not truly knowledge in the verb adverbial sense until it, you know, comes sure. back out into the world. And so that's a thing sure. that, um, you know, I, I I love all of this decoding stuff, but like uh, I'm, I'm super big on that that constructivist part as well. So you talked about sure. this. Uh, political sign-throwing, and here we are in the week of impeachment. It's taken over the media, and the political sign-throwing is all over the president's feet, you know, just in the last 24 hours. His pinned image at the moment is of the president sitting in a dark space, boxed in by the frame, black suit, interrogation lighting overhead, and an Uncle Sam index uh, finger pointed at the lens, and the text is reading, in reality, they're not after me, they're after you. I'm just in the way. Then the New York Times, you know, we mentioned just published this survey of teachers of how they're approaching this historical moment, and your book spends a lot of time talking about political ads, emotional manipulation. What are your recommendations against these dark arts of political ad manipulation? Um, how would you recommend teachers and students approach this material? Because it it is completely loaded with media literacy elements of symbolism, of emotional hooks, of narrative. Uh, you're absolutely right. And and rather than uh, go into my long
1: history of how important it is to analyze political ads, I would urge everybody to go to my website, Media Literacy Clearinghouse, mm-hmm. which is, my URL is my name, com, and look at the link on the role of media and politics. What I'm doing lately is pulling back the curtain even further, that teachers can go online to the FCC's website, and they can enter the call letters of their local television station and download the actual contract of each presidential candidate and find out how much the candidate paid for a 30-second ad. So for example, in South Carolina, this was in July, Jim uh, Tom Steyer paid $35 for a 30-second ad in the 11 o'clock news. Why was it so cheap? In the Wheel of Fortune, he paid $500. Why why did it cost so much?
0: Mm.
1: Most teachers don't know that the rules of political campaign advertising say, a television station must charge a legitimate candidate the going rate, they cannot artificially raise the rate during the election season, right? But a super PAC buying the same 30 seconds in the same Wheel of Fortune might pay $5,000. And so my question is, for students and teachers, who benefits when political candidates buy time on television? And We could explore this. How do you define the word benefit? But increasingly, it is the television stations and their owners who are raking in millions of dollars during this political campaign season. And students ought to be exploring things of that nature. In my own work, Uh, Recently with social studies teachers, I had them draw the name of a candidate out of a hat and then draw an issue out of a hat. And with the candidate's name and the issue, they had to write a 30-second commercial. How could they do that? Well, they had to know how a 30-second commercial is structured. I had to show them other commercials so they get an example, but they had to do their research. What has this candidate said about this issue or what is on his or her website about this issue? And now boil it down to 30 seconds. What are you going to say in 30 seconds? And what are you going to put on the screen that's also going to be persuasive? Looking at a political campaign ad and deconstructing it is appropriate, but let's go even deeper. And and media literacy is about the economics, right? Most media are designed to make money, right? I, I teach, how did the American Idol get on the air? Well, it had to pitch itself to advertisers who were trying to reach the same audience as American Idol. And when those advertisers sign on, then the American Idol gets on the air. And since American Idol's been on the air for years, it's become branded, so we have American Idol concerts and American Idol CDs, you get the idea. Mm -hmm. But students don't know, when I ask them what the purpose of television is, they say it's to entertain. And I go, no, the purpose of television is to bring eyeballs to advertisers. What's the purpose of the magazine on the grocery store shelf? It's to deliver you to the advertisers of that magazine. And that magazine wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the advertisers. So I'm saying to teachers, how many of you all ever take a field trip to the advertising agency? No, we never do that. Why don't we? That's where the creative vision is going, okay? But no teacher takes students to the advertising agency and introduces them to the work of advertising, yet advertising surrounds us, right? I say to teachers, have your students walk around school and make a list of all the advertisements at school. Have students, from the moment they wake up in the morning until the moment they go to sleep at night, make a list of every ad they come in contact with. Now, think about that, you wake up this morning, you brush your teeth with a brand of toothpaste. You might uh, take a shower with a brand of soap. You might sit down to the breakfast table and have a brand of oatmeal. You get the idea, you get in the car, you get in the bus, you're gonna pass billboards and signs everywhere, you get to school, and of course there's no advertising at school, we don't allow that. Of course there is, it's all over the place. And so how does advertising get into our heads? How does it pull the emotional strings, right? These are the things that we can explore, have students not only analyze that political campaign message but create it as well, That's, that's media literacy.
2: Frank, that's extremely powerful, applying this systems thinking uh, to all of our media through the lens of chasing the money, finding out you know, how, you know who's making these political ads, how much it's costing. But I particularly love how applicable all of this is in other media forms, because what you're talking about is also picking apart the scrolling effect and the addictive effects of things like Instagram, of TikTok, of Facebook, and these are all free services. But at the same time, what they're doing is watching you every move, collecting every little data point you offer, and then figuring out how they can micro-target you to whatever, you know, ad needs to be in front of your face. Even today, I'm sitting here with
1: um, direct mail pieces that I've received from candidates. And I, I think I tweeted this out recently. Don't throw them away, teachers bring them into the classroom and use them. They are informational texts, Hmm. right? These are also um, persuasive. In what ways are they using color? Um, What quotes are are, are being used? Um, Is there a call to action? Is there a website that you could go to to contribute to the campaign? All of these things are very, very important to the candidate, but to
2: those of us who are receiving end of it, this is fodder for instruction. When you mention science videos in your book, I feel like you're talking about a holistic literacy. To me, nature documentaries are basically lies. I mean what I mean is they depict this Eden Eden like natural world where we awe at the design of the complex system of a master maker. While in reality, human impact is threatening just about every ecosystem and biome in existence. Systems thinking is part of media literacy, as you've just explained. And I think of glocalizing topics of study, using powers of 10 to zoom in and out, showing how each node affects the other. This would justify me- media literacy as a kind of holistic literacy, connecting all disciplines. As you mentioned, painting can be a base for approaching photographs, posters, and other forms of imagery, infographics and data visualizations for math concepts, and really any media needed necessary to stoke student inquiry. This all starts to sound like semiotics of a holistic literacy studying the transfer of the construction of meaning. What would you like to see as your ultimate goal for media literacy? Would you like to see it as a sanctioned subject? Or for it to be something like the cross-cutting skills and practices in STEM standards that move from area of study to area of study? Something like what Dewey wrote about as the technologies.
1: My goal would be to see media literacy incorporated throughout the disciplines. I I know many school districts have a media literacy elective. That's great, but how many students take it, right? Uh, uh, In South Carolina, the State Department of Education here has already said, well, we're teaching media literacy. We don't need this new legislation. And they cite a computer and technology course, which I believe is taken by very few students. We need to realize when we say text, we're not just talking about words on a page. When we say the word literacy, we need to consider all of the literacies. The problem in education is we're still in the 1960s. We're still in a very print centric world when the visual medium has taken over the communication process, but the educational system has not kept up. I mentioned earlier, I went to that math conference, that science conference, you name a subject, I can tell you how media literacy could be incorporated. And and what I've said in my readings is, if you're an educator and you use images or video anywhere in instruction, then you need a strong dose of media literacy education. We've got to go deeper. If we're gonna be competitive uh, uh, with all the other students in, in all the other countries, we have to make media literacy a priority, and I don't think it, it is in 2019.
2: You quoted the Horizon Report as saying that the, the number one challenge for schools, I think this is a 2009 report, is a growing need for formal instruction in key new skills, including informational literacy, visual literacy, and technological literacy. Are all these just under the same blanket of media literacy? Um, because I feel like it is such a vast bracketing term would you like to see these things more separated and identified or should this just be something that is part of our idea of what literacy is?
1: I was recently asked a similar question and and I can only think of a Venn diagram with literacy as the big circle in the middle and all of the other literacies are the smaller circles which overlap the larger literacy and if we were to show that diagram to educators and say, all right, so uh, we are all teaching students how to read and write the the big circle, but how many of us are teaching visual literacy, graphic literacy, media literacy, technology literacy, digital, and whose responsibility is that? I think in today's world, a lot of educators say, well, I'm not responsible for teaching that, that's somebody else's responsibility. No. That's everybody's responsibility. Mm. And not only inside the K-12 building, but outside the K-12 building. We need to make sure that parents and grandparents are also media literate. I saw a statistic that said something like the over 65 age group is the most susceptible to misinformation. If that's true, we've got to reach them as well, because they have been the role models for parents and for for grandchildren. We've got a huge job in front of us. My job is to try to get in front of as many educators as possible and say media literacy is important, but it's not rocket science. You could do this. With a simple instruction. You know, a one hour workshop from Frank Baker is great. Three hour workshop from Frank Baker is even better. And educators that have had me for a whole day, wow, you're gonna walk away
2: with a lot of wonderful tools to add to your education toolbox. So tell us, you have a book chapter coming out in 2020. Your clearinghouse is a lot of your book is on there. Uh, I noticed and and more that you go into much more detail where can people well, tell us a little bit about your book chapter coming out and then where do people connect and follow with your trajectory
1: I've written several book chapters recently so I'm, I'm not able to <laughs> hone in exactly on that one just continue to try to write about why media literacy is important to all of my audiences. You know, it kind of reminds me, I've said, you know, so you're walking out of church one day, and uh, the minister's standing at the door to to greet you, and and he said, what do you do, and I I teach media literacy. Well, he says, well, what is that? You better have a really good answer for what it means to you. And what it means to me, and, and I have a very narrow definition, it's applying critical thinking to all media messages. And my narrow definition comes from the fact that I am an educator and my audience is educators. And I, I'm trying to help them relate media literacy to what it is that they do, even though media literacy is huge. It goes beyond the borders of, of just education. Yeah. Again, my goal is and, and I write a regular blog, middleweb.com. It's almost uh, once a month, I think now. Where I look at the media and current events and popular culture and try to make those connections. So in November I'm writing about toy commercials. In January I'll be writing about Super Bowl uh, marketing. Um, in February I'll be talking about the movies because the Academy Awards are coming out. Mm. And that's it. I- I'm trying to look at our world and say, why is this here? Who's paying for it? What techniques are they using? How can I how can I bring this into the classroom and do a two minute? a two minute media literacy lesson that will be meaningful. You talked about a third grade lesson in in toy advertising that you remember even to this day, that it was impactful. And I'll just relate rather quickly before I have to go. I had just finished doing a workshop in a high school classroom and the bell rang and these two young ladies were packing up their, their backpacks and I heard one say to another, I'll never look at a commercial the same way again. And I thought, wow. That's great. It's good to hear that. Hmm.
2: That comes with my idea that it doesn't have to be a class, that even modular study, even library space, like wherever you can get it in, this is what kids are decoding most of their day. They are increasingly decoding a graphic, digital, video world around them. It only makes sense that we talk about how this communicates meaning at the same time. I noticed that you have worked with American School of Bombay. I work with the international schools as well, I'm here in Bogota, Colombia. Yeah. I would love to see you keynoting, workshopping at many of the other schools in the network as well. Uh, thank you so much for um, spending the time. I know this is a giant topic. It's hard to even capture in 90 minutes, uh, but I think you gave us a really good start on you know, what this is and, and where to go from here. Chris, thank you. And to take some time for your naturalistic world, I just want to end with it. If you want to see uh, Frank Baker's photography work, that is definitely worth looking at. And you can start with the royal turn upside down. It's an amazing image. Uh, I think you've written a li- an article about that as well. Um, for me, it was a beautiful thing of not just focusing on the artifact of the media piece, but a system thinking of the process and the iterations you went through and what you learned about the natural environment and royal turn behavior on your way to to create that image. Um, Thank you very much, and I would hope to be in touch in the future. Thank you, Chris. Have a great day. Great. Bye-bye.
0: Podcast episodes will continue through the fall with a special concentration on schools moving forward through the pandemic find past episodes on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever you search for podcasts. Reach out to me on Twitter at Chris Davis Lens. If you like the podcast, follow, like, retweet, comment. Thanks for listening. Until next time.